take out your Bible and turn with you to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. We, uh, we've been taking very large sections of the book of Matthew, and this week we're going to look at Matthew 26 and 27. We won't read it all, but this is the story and the narrative of the last day or so of Jesus' life on earth before his resurrection. And, and what this leads up to is, is the cross. Um, and so instead of reading the entire two chapters, I want to read Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry the, his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. <clears throat> but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Let's pray. Jesus, however bad we think the cross was, it was worse. We pray that this scripture and these two chapters would, would help us to see and savor you more today. In your name we're able to pray. Amen. Well, these two chapters are some of the darkest in all of the Bible. Um, and it's fitting that on this first Sunday of Lent, which we don't really practice as a church, but we'll acknowledge uh, that we are getting closer to Easter. It's fitting that we're talking about the cross. It's fitting that we're talking about these final days and final hours of Jesus before he was crucified. He had been looking forward to this over and over again, telling his disciples, this is the way things are heading. I'm going to be heading towards Jerusalem, and it's going to be a major conflict. Uh, they're going to take me, and they're going to kill me and I'm going to be buried, and I'm actually going to come back, but, but it's going to be bad. And then here we are, we find ourselves in Matthew 26 and 27. And what we see in these two chapters is the one who carried the cross for your life is also the king of your life. The one who carried the cross for your life is also the king of your life. And so we're going to look at three sections of this story this morning. We're going to look at the cost we're going to look at the cross, and then finally we're going to look at the call. The cost, the cross, and the call. First, the cost. Now, when I was thinking about this, I, I saw this theme all throughout these two chapters as I just 
put the text in a, in a document and was able to just look at it over and over. And that's how I start my study every week. I just go, God, what's here? Right? This is something we can all do when we read God's word. I'm just going, God, what, what do we see? And something that stuck out to me over and over is this theme of value, of worth, of cost. To the woman in chapter 26 who has the alabaster jar of perfume, Jesus was priceless. She wasn't considering how much this perfume cost when she broke the jar open and, and anointed him with it. But to the disciples that were there, they were a little bit shocked. They knew Jesus. They were familiar with him. And they were looking at that bottle of perfume thinking, this could be worth some money and we could use that money to do something good. To Judas, Jesus was worth about 30 pieces of silver. To his friends, Jesus was worth some great lengths, but then they all drew a line in the sand at some point in these two chapters and end up abandoning him before he's hanging there on the cross. Jesus is worth a lot, and I'll follow him, but let me take a nap, Jesus, instead of watching out for you as you pray in the garden. Jesus, I will defend you. I will cut off a man's ear. I will never forsake you. I will never let them take you. But if that little girl questions me in the alley, Peter draws the line at that cost. And then I'm thinking something that I learned. I didn't get this trait from my family, but I've learned this since I was a kid. My dad and his side of the family have always been uh, buyers and sellers of used goods. They have visited yard sales my entire life, Fridays and Saturdays. They bought used cars. My dad felt like had a, a new car every six months and then if he could sell it for a few hundred dollars more, he would. And then he'd get another car. And we drove all sorts of cars when I was a kid. And it was something that I learned he just enjoyed doing. Now that the kids are out of the house, this is how he spends his Fridays and Saturdays. He sits down the night before and maps things out and figures out where yard sales are and, and has a very strategic route where he will go. And he's had to territorialize because his brother, who lives in Cartersville, does the same things. And it could be quite embarrassing. My dad rolls up to a yard sale when his father was still living. And he would say, hey, I'm John Day, and I buy these things. And he would say, is your brother Jimmy, and is your dad also named Jimmy? Because they've both already been to this yard sale trying to buy these things. So they had to eventually come up with a map of who would go where. Okay, you, you have this territory. You can go to the south. You can go this way. But one thing I learned from my dad and my papa and my uncle is that something is only worth what someone will pay for it. Yeah, we have a lot of people in the room who identified with having something you thought was valuable until you think, well, who will give me the money for this, right? Something's only worth what you can find someone to pay. You can find online, hey, this baseball card is worth this much. This car is worth this much until you go to the dealership and they say, no, I'll give you this much for that car. Something's only worth what someone will pay for it. And in this passage, we see over and over what people are willing to pay. What are people willing to pay to associate with Jesus? What is Jesus willing to pay? I mean, we've seen in this passage that Jesus is worth different amounts to different people, but, but to Jesus in this passage, no cost was too high. Notice how he paid in terms of his reputation. He stood and endured unspeakable slander against his name and character. And he endured it silently, as Isaiah 53 predicted, like a lamb is led to the slaughter silently before its shearers. Jesus was totally innocent, and yet he let them speak against him. Awful things, mocking him, like the text we just read. Now the good news of that is as he was willing to pay with his reputation 
and stand there and not defend himself. He stands defenseless in the garden as they come to arrest him. And he stands defenseless in front of the accusations made against him from the Jewish leaders, from the Roman leaders of Pontius Pilate. He stands defenseless. And the good news for us this morning is that Jesus stands defenseless at his judgment. Come on. So that we can stand defenseless at ours. Now we're quick to defend our reputation, our name, our character, our integrity. We're quick to defend the work of our hands and our abilities. We're quick to defend who we are and why we do the things that we do. And Jesus, who had every right to defend himself, stands silently. So that we, who have no hope to defend ourselves, when we stand before judgment, we are free to be silent because he was first. He stands defenseless so that we can stand. He was judged then so that we will not be judged later. And how unpopular of a view is it that Jesus, the greatest leader the world has ever known, the king of God's kingdom, did not defend himself, did not answer every accusation and charge put against him. How would our world be different if we valued leadership like that? But Jesus, seeing no cost too high, also pays the cost of his body. He tells his followers when they're celebrating the Passover, probably a day early because he knew what was going to happen on the first day of Passover. So they're celebrating it early and he institutes the Lord's Supper, giving them the bread and the cup, telling him, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. God is having a new way to relate to his people. He tells them then, my body will be broken. My blood will be shed. And then, sure enough, he offers up his body to be beaten and hung from a cross. So everybody has a different cost for what Jesus is worth. And then to Jesus, it seems like there's no cost too high. And now the question comes to us. Because when we read the Gospels, every time you read a piece of the Gospels, we see something that we learn about Jesus, and then we see all these characters and how they interact. And we're invited by the authors to identify. Who, what character do we identify with? And so I think the question gets turned around to us this morning. What's Jesus worth to us? Do we draw a line that's a point that we'll follow Jesus too, but Jesus, don't ask me to cross that line. I'll follow you up to here, but I can't really go beyond that. Is there a cost too high for us to follow Jesus? Well, yeah, there is. I'll save us all some thought, yes, because we've all done it. We've all had a heart that did not want Jesus to be king. We've all had a heart that says, like Adam in the first garden, my will, not yours, be done. And now Jesus, thankfully, in this last garden, stands there and says, not my will, but yours be done. Of course, there's a cost that we're gonna draw in the sand and say, Jesus, this is too much. I don't know if I could follow you past this. But the truth is, we all sacrifice for things we love. Sometimes we will sacrifice for Jesus. Being here this morning is a sacrifice, friends, and I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful you wanted to wake up and come to church. I'm thankful for the people that are with our kids right now. There are 10 volunteers out here with Kids from birth up to 
18 years old. Thank you. And so many of you are rotating in and out. That's a sacrifice. I'm so thankful for that. We all sacrifice for the things we love. We will sacrifice all year long to save up for presents to buy at Christmas. We'll sacrifice for vacations that we love. We'll sacrifice for the retirement we hope comes one day. We'll sacrifice for cars, for clothes. We'll sacrifice for a certain kind of house. We'll sacrifice for certain hobbies that we're trying to make time for and devote resources and money towards. We might not think we have a lot of money to give or to spend on certain things until it comes to the things that we truly value, and then we are obviously willing to sacrifice to get those things. We will always sacrifice for the things that are most valuable to us. Now, if this were a message that were based on what I think the Bible teaches called the law, we would just keep hammering this application point. And then there'd be a stream of guilt put on you for loving things more than Jesus, and then we'd end the sermon by saying, so love him more, right? You love all these other things more than Jesus, shame on you. But the point's not that you need to get it together and give Jesus more and more of your life. That's secondary. The point here is not to shame you and guilt you into thinking, well, look at all these things you love more than Jesus. How dare you? The point is that we have all sold him out. We've all played Judas. We've all betrayed him like Peter. We've all sold out Jesus and failed to give him the best of our lives. We've all drawn a line and said, I won't follow you past this. This is too great of an ask, Jesus. I can't do it. And even though we've all done that, he still paid the cost for you. That's the difference between a message that's based on the law and a difference between a message that's based on the gospel. We're not here to guilt and shame you into sacrificing more and more for Jesus. I'm here to convince you how much Jesus loves you. And the good news is that he still paid the cost knowing who you were, knowing what you would do. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the shame and pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy of bringing glory to God and good to people. He still went to the cross for you and I. He still went to the cross for you and I. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is the cross. We look at the cost. Now we look at the cross itself. And the first thing we see with the cross is the pain and the shame. It doesn't take long to consider the pain of the cross. Nails driven through his hands. And we read the story of uh, Jesus is carrying the cross and, and, he, and he can't carry it any longer. So they get this Cyrenian man named Simon to, forcing him to carry the cross. So probably what happened was they had one stake in the ground and then he was just carrying the cross beam already nailed to him after he's already been beaten and mocked. It doesn't, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine the horror and the pain of this method of execution. But consider the other things that went into the pain and the shame of the cross. This is the Lord of the universe, the one through whom God created everything. Now crumbling beneath the weight of a piece of wood that he spoke into existence. The dependence he showed by the simple fact that he couldn't carry it anymore. 
Crucifixion was painful, but it was also embarrassing. It was degrading, and it was shameful. Fleming Rutledge, in her massive book on crucifixion, says early on in the book, the point of crucifixion was to dehumanize the person who's being crucified. And she says every time she's ever taught the crucifixion, academic settings, church settings, she's challenged the audience, if you can give me one name other than Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, then that will be the first name I've ever heard because as far as I know, history has never recorded a name of someone who was crucified other than Jesus of Nazareth because it was so dehumanizing. The point was not to remember those who were dying. The point is to take them outside of the city, dehumanize them, force them to suffer, and then at that point, you were not even given a quick death, but a slow and agonizing one. You weren't even given the dignity of not just a quick death, but of someone else taking your life. You were forced, in effect, to take your own life because you would die by having to draw breaths, by pulling yourself up to try to breathe again, and you would die by not being able to breathe, your lungs being flooded with fluid and blood. And in effect, you were the one to be your own executioner. The crucifixion was painful. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. It was dehumanizing. And that is exactly what sin does, is it dehumanizes each one of us. But then there's another added layer of, of shame here which is the curse of the cross. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who's hanged on a tree is under God's curse. So D.A. Carson says that in, in Israelite law, this meant that the corpse of a judicially executed criminal was hung up for public exposure, and that branded this person as cursed by God. But in Jesus' day, this also applied to anyone who was crucified. And that's why it was so stinging that the Jews demanded Jesus be crucified because they knew that crucifixion was a sign of cursed by God. Paul picks up this theme over and over as he talks about the curse of hanging on the cross. So there's a a physical element to it. There's a psychological element to it of knowing I am the one through whom everything was created and I can't carry a piece of wood right now. There's a shame piece to it. There's a curse piece to it. And then he's hanging on the cross and you come to the section we read a few minutes ago of the mocking and the accusations that begin to take place as he's hanging there dying. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, they remembered what he said. They said, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down. Let God rescue him now. If God takes pleasure in him, the good news of what happens is that Jesus doesn't listen to those accusations. He is rebuilding the temple by bringing God's presence to the lowest places known to man. He doesn't come down from the cross so that he can come down to us. He does not save himself so that he can save us. He is the king of Israel precisely because he stayed on the cross. He trusted in God, he really did. And God did, in fact, rescue him. And last of all, they mocked that God would take pleasure in him. They they see this pain-stricken, beaten, embarrassed, 
cursed man hanging on a cross. And they say, let God rescue him if he takes pleasure in him. And this makes sense when we see Jesus' cry of of despair coming from the cross where he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems like Christ is in total despair because he's been left alone. He's got nothing stripped of his dignity, stripped of his humanity, stripped of his power, stripped of his friends, stripped of his very life. Are the mockers right? Has God stopped taking pleasure in Jesus at this point? Sinclair Ferguson writes that while Jesus is on the cross, and I've talked about this before, while Jesus is on the cross crying out Psalm 22 verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can come over here and put on our theology hats for a moment and and remember back to the Apostles' Creed. We, as Bible-believing, Orthodox, Apostles' Creed, Trinitarian believers, believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons, one God. We don't believe there's one God that shows up three different ways at different times. We believe there are three distinct and unique persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one God. And then we come to a place like this at the cross, and we think, how? How can there be one God? And there's so much of the details of this we we don't fully understand, but one thing I think our Trinitarian beliefs, never letting go of that and never letting go of this true cry of despair from Psalm 22 verse one is that at the same time, the Father in the deepest depths of his love delights in the Son, and at the same time, the Son senses the Father turning his face away. And here's the hope that gives you. That at the same time, in the depths of your despair, the Father also loves you. The cross assures you of that. As he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father could have been saying, Psalm 89, verse 28, I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. While Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The Father says, Psalm 89, verse 33, I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. Or Sinclair Ferguson says, the Father could have been singing to him, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. As Jesus says, where are you? The Father says, I'm right here. And I love you. And I've not forsaken you. And as we behold this man on the cross, we're forced to ask, who is this? And we're brought back to C.S. Lewis. He's a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. This is no good teacher. This is a Jesus where you can have no neutral ground on how you relate to him. You can't ignore a man like this. He's either crazy and deserved to die. He's a liar in which he took it way too far. Or he's truly the Lord. And that's what happens in chapter 27, verse 54. One of the soldiers confesses that this must truly be the Son of God. 
He's not merely a good teacher out here to improve our lives. This hardly seems an improvement at all. He's not here to just give us some tips and advice and show us a better way to live. He's the Lord of all who died so that we can live with him forever. And if he is the Lord, then the cross is his enthronement. This is not how we think of power and authority. This is how we think of defeat. And I'm thinking about the story in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of, of Aslan, who is a Christ figure. And <clears throat> the white witch who's ruling Narnia, and it's always winter and never Christmas, there's no hope, it is cold and bitter, and she rules with an iron fist. And she gets Edmund to turn and betray the other humans, and he deserves to die because of what he's done. And Aslan says, you know the deep magic. If I substitute myself in pure innocence, and I lay down, and I give up my life, then they can go free. And the white witch thinks, gotcha. So he shows up, and the lion's pride of the mane gets shaved off. His giant mouth that can let out a victorious roar gets muzzled, and he's lain down to be executed. And she is speaking over him, and to anyone who can hear, you think this is going to save them, but it doesn't, because the moment you die, I rule Narnia, and you think this saves them, but it actually just confirms my grip and grasp over them. And in that moment, it looks like total defeat. But if you continue to read Narnia, you know that Aslan is the king and he will come back victorious just like we read what looks like total and absolute defeat. And this is Christ's enthronement. Who is this man hanging on the cross? And if he's the Lord of all, what does that mean for us? And that brings us to our last point this morning, the call. Throughout the passage, we've seen many responses to Jesus. Many people have, have thought many different things about him. Some mocked, some bystanding, just observing what's happening. Some are forced to participate, like Simon, who carries the cross for Jesus. What we see is that the kingdom of God comes through the cross of Christ. The one who carried the cross for your life is also the king of your life. We're called to follow a king who was crucified, a king who accomplished salvation through suffering, who rules through surrender, who gives life through death. This, friends, is our call, to find life through death. This is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We see Christ's crucifixion as our own, and by doing that, it gives us confidence that if God doesn't leave Christ on the cross, he won't leave us either. But the suffering of Christ drives so many away. We see it drive his followers away, and there's still some there at the foot of the cross as he's being crucified watching, but they've been driven from his side. Suffering throughout church history has driven many away from the faith. They decide the cost is too high. And the call of Jesus includes a cost for his followers. Judas, we've already said, sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Peter drew the line after Jesus was arrested and said, I'm not going to keep following from here. The woman with the jar of perfume saw no cost too high to honor her Lord. 
Jesus, though, on the cross for you and I, cried out that Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I can call out Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that so that we can cry that. And we can know that no matter what comes our way, we are safe, secure in the arms of Jesus forever. Because Christ has been to the bottom and he's brought God's presence there. So if you're at the bottom, Jesus has been there and he's already infused it with the presence of God. One writer said that at Christmas we celebrate glory of God in the highest, glory to God in the highest, and the cross is glory to God in the lowest. Now the call in our lives is that we are baptized into the way of a suffering Lord. Eternal victory, yes, but on this earth, at this time, it's the way of suffering. Jesus showed us the way. And the truth is, for all of us here this morning, if you choose not to follow the way of Jesus this morning, you don't have a choice about whether or not you're going to suffer. You only have the choice of who you're going to suffer with and how are you going to handle that suffering. What's going to comfort you in that suffering? Who's going to hold you in that suffering? What's your hope? What's your purpose? What's your plan? We don't have a choice about whether or not we suffer. Only who we're going to suffer with. And Matthew 26 and 27 invite us to suffer with hope because our suffering Savior has gone before us and he is enthroned on a cross and now he reigns forever. So friends, Matthew 26 and 27 invite us to see that the one who carried the cross for your life is also the king of your life. Let's pray.